Namo tasa bhagavato harato samma sambodasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambodasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambodasa Homage to the Buddha, the blessed noble and fully self-enlightened one. Um, I just thought I'd continue that theme of um, relationship. Um, Normally, at Christmas, I do the um, uh, paramis, the ten perfections. The perfections were, it translates the word parami, which means the other shore, is what takes you to the other shore. They were a later collection of what... uh, uh, the commentaries thought was important about the Buddha's teachings. Um, <clears throat> but um, just to try and put it in, I'll, I'll, I'll just speak them and then you can see what they are. So, so there's dana, there's giving, <clears throat> there's morality, there's renunciation, there's wisdom, which is a mental virtue, energy, patience, truthfulness, resolution, loving-kindness, and equanimity. So those are the, the ten that were chosen by the, the wise ones out of the Buddhist teachings. <laughs> and as you know, the, the Mahayana only have six, so that makes us much more superior. <laughs> um, just to talk about uh, re- relationships. So remember that we were sort of trying to say last night that there's a part of the Buddha's teachings about insights, about actually understanding uh, who and what we are and all that sort of stuff and how we create suffering. But the, the other part is how it expresses itself in the world through our relationships. Um, occasionally when I watch uh, these um, videos on TED, have you come across TED, T-E-D? It's a website that has lots of talks by experts on stuff, yeah. Some are very, very, well, I like them. But these uh, people who are into uh, positive psychology, you know, you, you, they come across his word. You come across his word connections. That's their way of expressing relationship, which to me uh, is really just about reducing it to some sort of communication in a way. In a way, because academics will always try to find another word on the presumption that they're coming up with something remarkably new, <laughs> quite difficult to use ordinary words like relationship. So the fundamental relationship that the Buddha's talk about, and which is throughout the East, of course, is ahimsa. Yes, no, no harm. And um, this was variously translated. So the, the, uh, the Jains, as you know, uh, thought that when you did harm, even if you didn't mean it, you were going to get your comeuppance. So he basically avoided stepping on ants and all that sort of stuff. You know, they'd come back and bite you in the bum or something. And uh, you see them, you know, brushing their way before they, before they take a step as a sort of um, a very, um, I think it's a very great sensitivity to the amount of harm we can do uh, just because either we're not aware of it or we don't want to be aware of it uh, and, and so on. It's just ignorance, you see. But from the Buddha's point of view, uh, that wasn't really the problem. Uh, his, his problem was always to do with how we create suffering for ourselves, 
and therefore it was an internal thing and he brought it down to this whole this whole business of, of, of um, intention empowering an intention <clears throat> so when we empower intention remember you create a habit um, or an action you know the usual progression um, an intention an action a habit a personality and a destiny actually that's the sort of trajectory so our personalities are just these combination of habits see? and it's really recognizing what a habit's doing if it's doing any harm then uh, you know to undermine it to to um, to not go with that particular with those particular intentions but our in, inner intentional life, um, of course, expresses itself outwardly uh, in, you know, in obvious ways, in what we do, in more subtle ways, in body language. And, um, and this immediately creates a connection, to use that wonderful word. <laughs> so you're establishing a relationship. And, and the, the relationships um, uh, often, uh, are telling us, you see, how... Uh, what we're giving out in the world, even when we're not actually fully aware of it. Um, you know, people uh, with, well, an obvious one would be passive aggression, you know, where the person's obviously manifesting aggression, but when you say they're angry, they say, not me, I never get angry. <laughs> and it's that sort of um, uh, inability to see ourselves as we are, uh, even in relationship, but when, when something happens in a relationship, it's mirroring something back to us. Of course, you, <clears throat> you've always got to take into consideration that the other person's doing the same. So that's another thing we say, isn't it? That when two people meet, there are six people there. Yeah? There's me as I see myself, there's me as you see me, and there's me as I really am. And the same applies to you. So in this sort of web of, of delusion, it's very difficult to, <laughs> to work out you know, how or why things go wrong. Uh, but um, in terms of uh, the Buddha's teachings, um, at the root of this uh, problem lies this acquisitiveness, this desire, this you know, this this desire, and deeper than that, this sort of sense of of thirst, of lack. Other writers use that word, lack. Um, and in order to undermine that. Uh, we practice certain things that cut deep into that business of finding safety, finding happiness in acquisition. And, and that's the process of, of uh, renunciation. So again, I'm sure, I'm sure you all know the distinction that's often made between renunciation and mortification. So mortification was based on some idea that the soul uh, was held down by the heaviness of the, of the body. So there's also, you know, in, 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 you get it in, source, in, in Christian understanding too, don't you, that, um, you know, uh, it's, if the eye offends you, pluck it out. So people often believe it's the body at fault, you know. Sex is at fault. The actual, our sexual powers are what's evil, not, not the way we use them. They sort of, that's the devil drawing us down, you see, into the pleasures of life. <laughs> so... Um, the idea was, well, one idea was at that time, of course, that as you undermined the pleasures of the body, the soul released itself. And you often get that sort of self-mortification in, in other religions too. Uh, the Buddha saw that as just more suffering. So, but he didn't give up the idea of renunciation, you see. 
it, it shifted, the definition shifted, and it shifted to giving something up to see where the attachment was. It's as simple as that. So our fast, uh, you know, depending on uh, what came up for you in, in the fast, would, sh- would show you at times your attachment to certain patterns of behavior. See? Now that would be a sort of uh, negative uh, use of renunciation. In other words, you're positively giving something up in order to see where your attachment is. So, for instance, uh, we might disguise our loneliness, everybody feels lonely at some time or other, by uh, distracting ourselves, you know, watching TV, listening to the radio, always having some input, you see, so we're never actually in contact with the inner person. And then when you, when you go into a silence and there's nothing there and you're not distracting the mind, then suddenly you're on your own, you see, and in that ownness, uh, there's a sort of feeling of, of being abandoned, <laughs> unloved. Nobody loves me. How could they? I'm horrible. So it's getting, <laughs> and it's, it's getting in touch with that nasty feeling of, of loneliness and, and unlovedness and all that sort of stuff. But of course, uh, we would do it in order to get in touch with it, to feel it, to actually begin to explore that feeling, you know, and find out where its basis was, where it's coming from. And we also know that in that exploration, that malevolent energy that we've created through uh, attachment, you see. We've, we have defined love as how much another person can fulfill our needs. Uh, that's, what, that's what we understand the love to be. So when there's nobody there to fulfill our needs, then of course I'm completely unloved. I mean, no Christmas presents. Yeah, I don't get any more Christmas presents. <laughs> so so uh, when we, when we uh, cut deep into that, and, and we just, when we say cut deep into it, we're not trying to understand it intellectually. See, then, then that takes you off somewhere else. Cutting deep means going right into the pain of loneliness. You know, take that as an example. And then, of course, we find that, you know, it begins to transform. The transformation uh, happens quite naturally. It, ha- it can happen very suddenly. Suddenly you find it's gone and you're perfectly happy with yourself and you've discovered solitude, you know. Um, other times it sort of fades out, but it's, there's a sort of a murky sort of stuff there and, and not going anywhere, but even so, some of that energy is, is in the process of transforming, of moving to the opposite. In fact, I'm trying to use this new word, sublimating. <laughs> it just, there's no in-between state, it goes from one state to the other. See? So that's the, what we say, the, the, uh, the negative, uh, to use that word, um, use of uh, renunciation. Right? We're trying to find out where we're stuck, where we're holding on to things, trying to let go of things, you see. Uh, but any time we behave from the heart of love, there must be some form of renunciation. And the Buddha points this out in dana. In, 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 uh, that's his, one of his main teachings, dana, which is generosity. Whenever he's talking to lay people, he always starts with dana, and he points out that anybody can be generous, even a thief. You know, like after they've stolen your money, they can give it to somebody else. <laughs> Who's in need, or Robin Hood, you know. So, uh, uh, for generosity, it comes even before uh, sila, which means these five uh, basic rules uh, of no harm that we that we uh, chant every morning. It's even before that you can you can be a really uh, you know uh, ugly, terrible person, but still be kind to your dog and, and give it biscuits when it's when it's hungry. See. <laughs> So uh, that's the easiest one uh, to 
um, to generate. Now, of course, every time you're generous, you must be giving something up for the benefits of somebody else. See? So just in, in that process, um, the, there is a process for renunciation, and renunciation here, you know, not feeding into what, in, into myself, into my selfish needs, and giving it up for somebody else. And so, uh, one of the things, of course, that excites, and this is the little matrix that sort of spins around, are these three things. What, what makes generosity very easy, at least to, uh, to practice, is, uh, you know, developing gratitude. I remember once reading Meister Eckhart, 13th century mystic, who said that if, you say, if, if the whole of your life you said thank you, that would be enough. I mean, that was, that was his. Uh, that's how, he fe- how important he felt this, this attitude of gratitude was, you know. Thankfulness. Uh, I think it's one of the nice things of, uh, of, of, uh, of America that they have that Thanksgiving Day. Um, I, think, I think we have one, don't we, somewhere? Don't we have a... Doesn't the Church of England have a, an autumn Thanksgiving, doesn't it? Yeah. Is that what it is? No. When they collect all the, all the uh, stuff for, for harvest. A harvest festival, isn't it? Is that what you said? Harvest. Oh, sorry, I'm, I thought you said hog. <laughs> Don't ask me why. <laughs> you said harvest, I heard hog. <laughs> you see how wars start. <laughs> in fact, it reminds me of a lovely moment in a car with my family when uh, I was driving there somewhere and my mother was in a, a bit of a, in one of her little depressed, angry little moods and she was sat at the back glum. Uh, my father was, was saying something. He was, he was a bit high and being jolly. And he, he said, oh, come on, Rosa, cheer up. And she said, oh, well, you shut up. <laughs> that was brilliant. So, <laughs> so uh, this, little, uh, this little virtuous circle of, uh, of um, gratitude. See, when you think about just what we've received from society... You know, I remember somebody grumbling to me once that, um, you know, they didn't have any children. She didn't have any children. And she didn't know why she paid taxes so that other children could be educated. She found that absolutely obnoxious. <laughs> so so when, when you begin to realise that actually a lot of our education has been, you know, given to us by the generous taxation of other people. Uh, and it's just things like that and things that we take for granted that... Um, you know, because of our uh, social system, you know, uh, uh, doctors, the NHS, I mean, there's all sorts of things uh, which are sort of, which we presume now, you know, we don't see them as, a, as something which is gifted to us. Not that we don't pay our taxes, but... <clears throat> so, um, gratitude enlivens this, this idea of generosity. And... Um, as soon as we give something of time or of wealth, we must be giving it away from ourselves. We must be giving something up. And in a sense, um, there are various degrees, as you know, of generosity. You know, I mean, <clears throat> at Christmas, uh, people swap gifts. So that's what um, you know, kings, kings do when they meet. They, they swap gifts. It's just a friendship thing. It's a, social, it's a social nicety, you might say. But it has a purpose. But it's difficult to call it generosity because, you know, if your, if your lump of cheese didn't turn up, you'd be very upset because you know, <laughs> you, you've gone and bought them this, uh, another different type of cheese. 
So is that, is that sort of swapping of things, which is just a, a social nicety. But when it comes to real generosity, you know that you, know that you are uh, being uh, generous when, in a sense, what you're giving actually is pushing the boundaries of what you want to give without, of course, harming yourself. I mean, one doesn't want to give all one's wealth away and then end up on the, on the streets. There's a lovely story of St. Francis, one of his monks, or friars, brothers, um, taking this business of complete poverty as, as a standard, met somebody who needed clothes, so he gave him his robe and he came back naked. And so, <laughs> and so Francis had to make a rule that you could give everything away apart from your robe. So, <laughs> so there's certain, a certain sort of... Uh, we have to use our common sense. But um, it's when you give of time, you see, give of time, uh, that you know that where that boundary is being pushed, that actually you are truly beginning to renounce something. So I was just talking to my aunt there, and my aunt is, she belongs to that old school, she's what, she's you know, middle 80s or something. And um, she was telling me that um, when uh, Uncle John got sick, he was very old, um, she, she never went to bed for two years. She sat in a chair. Uh, one day he got up. He, got, he had a little stroke and at night he'd be disoriented. So one night she caught him trying to get out of the window and this really freaked her. So what she did was she put her armchair next to the window and sat there for two years. Never went to bed. And she would amuse herself by listening to the radio and knitting and doing all sorts of stuff. Uh, just for fear that he'd he'd be sleepwalking and and do something stupid. And uh, it ruined her sleep pattern, which she's never particularly regained, you know. And I'm just thinking, well, I wonder if I would do that then. (laughs) I'd probably just chain them to the bed, you know. (laughs) Put manacle on their their foot. (laughs) So so you've got these these different ideas of, of generosity. And, and, you know, like, that was her... She felt that was her duty. That was her... You know, she belongs to that age group which, which talks about duty, not rights, you know, about responsibility rather than rights. My rights. So um, this generosity, of course, you can, you, can ex, you can expand that into really all sorts of areas... So one of them, one of them, and it's funny, it's not actually in the, I don't know why it's not in the Ten Perfections. It's, I think, presumed in the word love, uh, metta. Because when, you, when we chant the loving-kindness discourse, you can see that the Buddha is giving it a very wide meaning of uh, just a loving relationship, which includes both compassion and joy. So when, uh, when something comes up which demands... Uh, was to help somebody who was in, who was in need, uh, then the generosity, you know, manifests as compassion. So it's the same when, when uh, somebody's rejoicing over something. So to, uh, to, to rejoice with them, to be happy for them, is also an act of generosity. Even, if, uh, you know, even more so if you feel absolutely miserable and the world's gone completely wrong for you, <laughs> but you're able to put that to the side and, and rejoice with the person who's, who's being happy. That's also an act of generosity. So generosity is, that, is in the widest sense of the term, is, is giving of oneself, you see, emptying, emptying the sort of giving oneself, emptying oneself towards another. It's very beautiful how the Buddha talks about his relationship to, uh, 
to the people he teaches. He says, whatever um, a teacher can do for his pupils, I have done for you, out of anukampan. Anukampan means to move towards somebody, see? The word that most of you know will be karuna, which, which is compassion. But the word he uses is anukampan, which is to move towards somebody, see? So when you see somebody who's, who's in need, you move towards them. And uh, it was one of the things on his um, big doubt, wasn't it? The great doubt, you see? So remember that in the great doubt when Mara arose and said, who the hell are you? Uh, to try and become liberated from all suffering. You know, you've been around, you've, you've been around everybody, you know everybody, and nobody's made it. And here, you know, like, where, where's, this, where's this, I, this ego thing coming from, this pride? And it's when he touches the earth and, and, the, and, the, and the earth goddess arises. And she defends him by saying, because of his past lives, perfecting the, perfecting the, uh, the, uh, the virtue of generosity. So what does this mean? It means that he saw that what he was doing wasn't just for himself. It was for, uh, for all beings. And that, would have, that gave him the, uh, the courage to withstand the doubt, the inner doubt as to, you know, what was he doing this for? And this is ridiculous, you know. And uh, that perfection of generosity was basically the, you know, if, if you, one interpretation of that story is, uh, that was the backbone of his, of his effort. That he wasn't that it wasn't just a matter of me trying to liberate myself from suffering, but also remembering that you know probably remembered his his own family and his and his son and all that sort of stuff, and then from then all his friends and people like that and there must have occurred to him that if he can crack this problem then he's he's cracked it for everybody <laughs> so that 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 gives your that gives your effort a, a meaningfulness which is just beyond yourself doesn't it i mean if you're doing something for somebody else. Uh, for yourself, but also for somebody else, it gives it a much deeper meaning. And, um, and if we were to talk about happinesses, you can talk about three sort of levels. You know, one is the ordinary sensual happiness, which is fleeting and all that, but it's a happiness, you know, physical happiness. It can also be intellectual, artistic, even, even the joys of um, the practice, you know, when some peace arises very occasionally. Then that's a <laughs> that is a bit of a bit of transient joy and to be enjoyed, and then there's that uh, there's that type of joy where you get lost in it. You know, uh, what I think um, what's his name Aristotle called it eudaimonia, um, and it's uh, it's when you get lost. It's when you lose the self in something like a DVD, you see, and and then you come out of it and suddenly you're there again. And during that moment, you've been perfectly happy. So you've not been self-aware, but you have been perfectly happy, and then you come out of it, and it's gone. You see, and it's it's catching that goneness that that brings up, you know, this idea of not getting attached to something that that you've become a um, in, uh, so involved in for happiness. You see? But what you uh, you know these um, uh, what do you call it these surveys and whatnot. But what makes people really, really deeply happy, which has nothing to do really with transient emotions, because they arise and pass away, and always send you pleasure, is meaningfulness. And uh, when that meaningfulness goes, you have despair. See? So that's why I say people who, are, people who lose meaninglessness, uh, meaningfulness in their lives, are really on the point of despair. And there was a, um, these soldiers who commit suicide after war and whatnot, uh, for whatever reason, psychologically, but, they, but it's seemingly they all commit suicide because at, at some point they despair, they despair, you see.
And I had a, a woman phone me up just the other day, you see, in a dreadful state, just at the point of, of despair, you see. Despair, just when, when you give up hope. And, of course, that's the sign, isn't it, on Dante's hell. You know, abandon all hope, you all. <laughs> you enter here. So uh, this idea of generosity has this very deep uh, way of connecting us. And it's only then that, we, that our lives seem to take on uh, a much deeper meaning. Um, and in that meaning, that connectedness, that, that very deep sort of relationship, that is really uh, love at its, at its deepest level, isn't it? Yeah. And when that's extended from human beings to animals and nature and the world and the cosmos and all that, then you suddenly find yourself you know, in, this, in this lovely place of being interconnected. I mean, that's what it means, isn't it? See? And, it's, and it comes about through generosity comes about through giving, compassion. It doesn't come about because you've thought about it and you've written an essay on interconnectedness. You know? <laughs> it's actually, it actually comes about just because you've made that effort to, to give of yourself um, into, the, into that huge sort of uh, matrix. See? And uh, you can even see some of the other ones. Uh, so Sila, I mean, that's, that's the, the dark side. You know, that's why we say you shouldn't kill and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and take what's not freely given and all those uh, negative things of not to do that, not to do that. And I think you'll find that every time you are behaving unethically and even in the smallest, uh, simplest, silly way that creates little qualms in the mind, <coughs> there'll be something against one of those five. The whole rule of the Vinaya, apart from those that are specific to... Uh, um, little rules and regulations are all around uh, these five basic rules. I mean, they're, they're fundamental, aren't they, to, uh, to, to our society, fundamental to our relationship. So in, in uh, correcting all the negative stuff that we do on those sides, anger, usual stuff, anger, you know, being, being callous, uh, little sharp words that we might say to people... By correcting all that, you see, that is also to be seen as a generous act, you see, because you're giving up this inner desire to, you know, to poke somebody in the eye, which can be very pleasurable. <laughs> so that's, that's a sila. Um, renunciation wisdom. Um, patience, you see. See, patience is another one. Now, the Buddha talks about that's a more, a more sort of... Um, what would you call it? Um, I'm trying to think of another word apart from negative. It's not negative. It's just the other side of the more positive <laughs> giving <laughs> language. Um, where the Buddha talks about it as the greatest form of ascetic practice. Right? So what, what does he mean by ascetic practice? He means, you know, bearing with suffering. So the, the self-mortificator, uh, you know, starves themselves, sits next to fires... Uh, for the heat, stands in the river Ganges for hours on end, so the karma is washed away. And there's all sorts of <laughs> wonderful ascetic practices. There was uh, even a, a Christian saint, uh, somebody of, uh, oh, I can't remember his name now, but he sat on a pillar. He was up there all his life. Uh, and he, that was it. He lived on, on the top of this pillar. <laughs> so these, these are things that probably came from the East. And you'll, st- you'll still see in, um, in India um, ascetics who've kept their arm up in the air and is withered. You know, I mean, I've seen that myself. Um, you know, because of some 
reasons. I mean, they have reasons for doing these things. <laughs> so, uh, so what he means by ascetic practice is that, is, is to bear with, patient forbearance. And of course, it, it begins inward, doesn't it? Because all this stuff comes up and we've just got to patiently bear with, with these emotional states that come up within ourselves. But they're the, same, they're the same states that we see in other people. There's nothing that separates us apart from the stories. Everybody has, has, has fear, everybody has depression, all that sort of stuff. But the stories are all different. They're all different dramas. See? But fundamentally, we've all got these uh, same experiences of life. And uh, bearing with somebody who's annoying us is an act of generosity, isn't it? See, you're sort of, you know, you're... you're you're sort of taking it on, and of course you don't want to be you don't want to be abused by them. That's another thing when you talk about love and whatnot. People get confused that you have to give, give, give. You know, even though even though you're being throttled. You know, <laughs> give of your neck. <laughs> but I mean, there's a there's not a limit. You know, like as soon as it as soon as the person's hurting you, then of course it, 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 there's, a, there's a different. Um, a different moral comes in where where your love has lost its um, uh, has lost its uh, uh, connection with you personally. See, it's no good giving, 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 and burning yourself out like a lot of people might do, especially you know caught up in things like ecology and all that, and they get very frustrated and angry and despairing. And it's all done with with goodwill, with with active, but they're, but they're, they're burning themselves out. So, uh, and he gives that lovely example, doesn't he? In that, uh, you know, if somebody came along with a machete, I mean, he doesn't use that word, but they go with a sword and chops you from limb to limb. You know, if ever you were even to be angry, you're no disciple of mine. I once said that, <laughs> I once said that, in a, in a, I said that in another talk. Somebody said, well, the Buddha had a great sense of humor. <laughs> so but I think he meant it. So uh, this, this idea of bearing with people, patient forbearance, it's a perfection, you see. And it undermines all the other stuff as well, especially the, the whole thing about victimization, you know, being the victim and how people get caught up in that, you know, why me? It moves into a sort of self-pity, you see. And what happens is they're unable to forgive, so they're locked into a really dreadful, a dreadful state, dreadful state. They just can't get out of that because uh, they have been hurt. Nobody's denying that and, and all that. But there's that self-pity, why me? And the hatred. And so long as there's self-pity, you can't forgive. You see, there's, a, there's a block. And it's only when you, when you begin to put yourself in the shoes of the other person who's done the harm and recognize that they also are going to have a lot of suffering because of the harm they've done. And how do we know that? By investigating the harm that we've done and recognizing that actually, internally, I'm not, I'm not looking at the amount of suffering in me for the harm I've done to somebody else. See? And the greater the harm, the greater the, uh, the more difficult it is to uh, to, sell, to forgive oneself. You see, so uh, that that whole victim thing can be a, a real lock, and 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 patient forbearance is part of that process of of, of forgiveness. Yeah. Uh, there's of course energy. Um, the Buddha is very tough on energy. I mean, the word comes up. Right there in the discourse on, on establishing right awareness, tapo, see, um, atapi, atapi, which comes from this word tapo, which comes up in the um, um, uh, in the uh, Mangala Sutta there, 
And it's, it's the energy that you need to really, you know, complete a task, see? Whatever it is, to complete the task, to, 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 to finish it, you know, whatever you undertake. Uh, often, uh, you know, people, they come on a retreat, you see. They come on a retreat, it gets a bit tough. They made a resolution to stay the week, it gets a bit tough. And, and towards it, they give up, you see. Now, um, what they're doing is that they're undermining their ability to perfect their commitments. So that any time it gets a bit difficult, there's always this little escape, you see. Now, it doesn't mean to say, I mean, I, I, on retreats, I'm sure you've heard me say that to, to commit yourself to the course, save an extraordinary circumstance or emergency. So it's not as though it's an absolute thing, you know. You know, like, uh, you know, if, uh, if, you know if, if the place caught fire, you're not supposed to sit there and <laughs> I will not leave this place. So there's, a, there's also a sort of common sense, but... Uh, whenever we whenever we say we're going to do something and we don't do it, we're actually harming ourselves. You see, so for instance, you might say to a friend, "Yeah, I'll come and decorate," and then you know, you, um, then you phone them and tell you you're not feeling so well today. <laughs> so, and uh, you know, it's like it's like you're undermining this ability to make resolutions, to make determinations. And if you think again of the Buddha's own practice, you know, the the moment of great determination, see, to sit under that tree either to crack this problem or to die. I mean, that's where he got to. You know, it was almost, you might say, a point of despair, you know. He, he had this little insight. He had this insight coming from childhood to actually investigate suffering, but he could see no other way. And if this didn't work, well, that was it. So he was prepared to, um, to sit there until he, until he died with it, you see. Uh, we call that the great, the great determination. So that's this uh, business of energy. The energy is needed, but resolution is, is the other perfection, see? But you need that energy. Um, when, you have, when you suffer from uh, dullness and lethargy, you see, remember that is also an energy. So you don't look at it negatively. Don't think to yourself, well, you know, um, this is something dragging, dragging me down. It is dragging you down, but it's an actual force. It's, an, it's a, a mental energy. Uh, it can also be physical. And if we, if we just allow it to manifest, it also transforms. Yeah? It also sublimates into its opposite, uh, which is good energy. See? Uh, sometimes it'll flip and just and become restlessness. But, but when it's actually moving towards its opposite, um, it's moving into this lovely flow of energy when our meditation is very, very easy for us. Uh, <clears throat> truthfulness, uh, here is something quite specific. It's, it's really uh, keeping your promise rather than not telling great big budgies, you know. <laughs> I mean, that's part of it, but it's actually... Uh, when you say you do something, that you actually do do it. So you can see that that melds into the whole thing of resolution and stuff. And the other one is wisdom, of course. Um, I've not put them in the same order here. Wisdom is a mental, uh, call it that, a mental uh, virtue. So it's really understanding things. And really it all begins there, doesn't it? If we've misunderstood something, then things go, things go awry. So it's, we always have to come back to this, uh, you know, the Buddha's um, uh, constant um, encouragement to reflect wisely. See, wise reflection, yoni so manasikara. 
So at the end of a sitting, that's why, you know, just to get in the habit of even if you only pick up one thing from your sitting, to, to just think about it, let it come to mind. And at the end of a day, you see, just to look back for a moment, pick up one or two things. Yeah? You have to be very careful not to always pick up the negative stuff. We're very good at that. Um, it, we have to also pick up the positive stuff. Yeah? Positive stuff that's happened to us today, uh, what we've done today. And uh, that's, that's, that's another thing about joy. You've got to actually excite joy within us, you know. You've got to uh, remember times when you were joyful and, um, and understand how that joy came about. And this, this sort of builds up a well of joy, you see. We tend, to, um, well, we tend to be a bit negative usually, don't we? Don't remember all the horrible things because they hurt. Uh, the pleasurable things that don't hurt, uh, we can, you know, they're all right. But by, by doing that, we get a sort of lopsided view of our lives sometimes. You know, it's all miserable and horrible and all that. We forget that. We've just had a good meal. So uh, these are our uh, paramita, uh, paramita. The final one is equanimity. And it's arguable, definitely um, um, Nyanaponika Terra, who wrote that uh, very good book, you know, The Heart of Buddhist Meditation. It still is, really, a classic. But he also wrote other essays. And um, in one, he argues quite strongly that uh, the perfection of equanimity is really the perfection uh, because it balances everything. Although equanimity does, uh, can have uh, its own dark energy, its own dark side of indifference. Yeah? Um, it does have this ability to uh, not to stop these things overriding. See? So that um, um, you know, things like uh, love doesn't become attachment. So seeing where the attachment is. How do you know? How do you know when you're attached, you see? Well, there's many ways, aren't there? Especially when you're getting irritated with somebody because they're not doing what, what you want them to do. That's, a, that's an obvious case of, <laughs> of attachment, see? Or when they disappoint you, when you're disappointed in somebody, see? Their expectation, stuff like that. Uh, compassion slips into pity, doesn't it? Pity for somebody. And if you think about how you feel when somebody pities you, then you know how horrible it is for somebody who's being pitied by you. <laughs> so it, it stops that, you see. And again, it's, it's this business of um, being open to what the other person is asking for, you know? not getting into that do-gooder thing. Joy slips into excitement. So you can, if you take any, any virtue, you'll see it has a little, it has a subtle energy, a subtle enemy, you see. So courage slips into foolhardiness. If, if you, I can't think of any more. Mine's gone back. <laughs> if you think of any virtue, it'll always have its little, uh, slightly subtle negative side that it, that it can slip into. I mean, it, that would be talking about generosity. So it slips into over-generosity. It just slips into, it goes beyond what you're actually capable of doing and you undermine yourself by doing that. So, um, that's a quick run-through, you might say, of these um, parameters, these parami. So it does say here, these qualities were developed and brought to maturity by the Bodhisattva in his past existences, and this way practicing them, illustrated in the many birth stories, the Jataka. However, 
<clears throat> it's only the verses that are regarded as canonical. That's of the the uh, the, the, uh, the stories around the Buddha. We you know where he's reborn as a hare and a and a. <laughs> so, uh, Aesop's fables, really. So uh, we can end this just by me reading this lovely uh, little paragraph, which expresses what the Bodhisattva, or the um, the person who wants to develop these ten perfections. <clears throat> As the great being, see, Mahasatta, so that's a synonymous really for the Bodhisattva. Destined for Buddhahood, are concerned with the welfare of living beings, not tolerating the suffering of beings, wishing long duration to the higher states of happiness of beings, and being impartial and just to all beings. Therefore, they give alms to all beings so that they may be happy without investigating whether or not they are worthy. By avoiding to do them any harm, they observe morality. And in order to bring morality to perfection, they train themselves in renunciation. In order to understand clearly what is beneficial and injurious to beings, they purify their wisdom. And for the sake of the welfare and happiness of others, they constantly exert their energy. Though having become heroes through utmost energy, they are nevertheless full of forbearance towards the manifold failings of beings. Once they have promised to give or to do something, they do not break their promise. That's the truthfulness. With unshakable resolution, they work for the weal and welfare of beings. And with unshakable kindness, they are helpful to all. And by reason of their equanimity, they do not expect anything in return. It's nice, isn't it? I remember once this causing a bit of a uh, discussion as to whether you should give without investigating whether they are worthy or not. <laughs> this is commentary, remember. So we can, we can <coughs> feel free to question that one. So I hope my words have been of some assistance. <clears throat> and that uh, you will soon perfect the perfections and enter into that a wonderful place, Nibbana, sooner rather than later. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.